Several weeks ago, I asked, uh, I asked you to submit questions, and some of them were submitted via like the prayer cards uh, in, the, in the box in the back. I almost called it a suggestion box. It's a prayer box. Um, some of them verbally, uh, others, uh, less of them in the series that will take us throughout the rest of the year are ones that I just discerned were good for us to visit, uh, even if they weren't asked out loud. Uh, but most of them are questions that you asked and you submit, so we're just calling it you asked, okay? Um, and, you know, part of me thought, boy, um, this is, this is uh, not a situation where, you know, simple questions were asked. It's, uh, I'm pleased that deep questions are asked. It lets me know kind of where people are in the church. Uh, a lot of work, though. A lot, a lot of work, Okay. Um, as I think about what we'll visit today, uh, I think about an illustration that I read in a book by Kevin Van Hooser, who's a professor and scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he said, Christianity is like a neighborhood. Christianity is like a neighborhood, and it has different streets, and people live on different streets. They're within Christianity, but they live in different streets, and sometimes in, within those same streets, you live in different homes, different houses. Some of you remember when you were a child, you can, you can remember the first address you lived in because you were told to memorize it. All these decades later, you can still remember the, the, the address and the street of where you live because it's important to know where you live. Now, many Christians know exactly where they live within Christianity. I live on this street, this block, that's my house right there. That's not to say a negative thing about the house across the street or the next street over, but this is where I reside as a Christian. I'm not saying everyone else is going to hell. I'm just saying this is, these are the distinctives of what I believe. Some Christians are sort of theologically homeless. And you're not sure. You're, you're wandering the streets of the neighborhood. Glad you're in the neighborhood. That's great. But you don't live in a particular house. Some people like being sort of theological hobos. I don't mean that to be necessarily negative. But you're just, you don't like houses. So it's just enough to live in the neighborhood, but I'm not going to be in a house because all these houses being constructed shows division. And the point that Kevin Van Hooser was making was neighborhoods are not about division. We just recognize there's sort of subfamilies, right, subunits within the neighborhood, but we're not at each other's throats. We're, we're glad that we live in a neighborhood. Uh, where are you? Uh, well... With regard to, we can talk about that with regard to many, many things, but the question that was posed to me is, what is Reformed theology? Some of you maybe have never heard that before. Some of you maybe are thinking, yeah, I've heard that, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. And that's what we're going to look at today and next week. Why? Because I didn't want to be here for three hours. You know what I mean? Like, this is, it's a big, it's a weighty question. Plus, we're going to need next week for the next series. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Uh, What is Reformed Theology Part 1, we can say? Now, I'm asking you to make sure that your seatbelts are fastened, tightened, and keep your arms and legs in the vehicle at all times, because we're about to take off. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace, and we pray that you would give us some clarity, some understanding as to this question, and that it wouldn't just be for the nerds and the theology geeks but we would understand that we've got to think about categories that Scripture gives us and how to put them together the best we can. Give us humility. 
to maybe accept some things that sound a little new. Give us humility if these sound old and we already agree with them and maybe think less of those who take a different position. We definitely need your humility in all of it, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we enter this theme of what is Reformed theology, uh, we're going to spend a few minutes before we get into Scripture. Now, a sermon is not a sermon if we're not in Scripture. It's just going to take a few minutes. I want to lay some groundwork to hopefully help us orient you, help orient you to this whole neighborhood of Christianity. Okay, uh, I'm going to turn around for a little bit and, and just make sure we're on the right slides. What is Reformed theology is our topic. We'll have part one today, part two next time. And the first thing we want to see is, you may have heard of the five solas every Halloween. All your Reformed friends are on Facebook posting pictures of Martin Luther with a hammer. Some of them dress up as Martin Luther. They've got John Calvin t-shirts. It's Reformation Day, all that kind of stuff. Because in 1517... Um, Martin Luther declared 95 theses against the Catholic Church. And as you look at the Reformation, these five points are sort of the five points that separated Protestant Christians from Catholicism. Some people think this is what makes you Reformed. That is not true. This is what makes you Protestant. Think of the word Protestant, the word protest. What was protested against the Roman Catholic Church? These five things. Now, Reformed Christians believe these five things, and sometimes other Protestants think these are specific to Reformed people, but uh, Scripture alone, aside from what? The Pope? Yeah. It's not Scripture and then also human tradition. Scripture is at the top. Um, Scripture alone. Uh, We're saved by faith alone, not faith plus some works. You have faith, but you haven't worked enough, you're still going to hell. Protestants believe, no, it's faith that saves you. Faith saves you, not works. Not your works. And grace alone, Christ alone. I've preached through these before. These are probably familiar to many of you. My point is, this isn't enough to say someone is Reformed. This should be everybody. Okay, that's Protestant. And if you dump these, you could pretend you're Protestant, but you're kind of Catholic. Let's just call it, call it what it is. All right? So the Protestant reformers were called that because they protested the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. All Protestants should hold the solas. Various Protestants might explain them a little differently. And that's, that's just what you're going to get. A, a Methodist church, a Wesleyan church, is going to explain the five solas differently. I remember being on a phone call with a Wesleyan pastor. I'm like, do you guys hold to the five solas? He's like, yeah, we just explain them differently. I'm like, thanks, that's what I thought. Because I presented a paper about the five solas being the core of evangelicalism, and people kind of scoff, like, ah, you just want us all to be reformed. I'm like, did I say reformed? I didn't say reformed. I, I'm using the solas of the Protestant Reformation, but it's Protestant. Okay. So here's the big neighborhood, okay? Christianity. What does everyone in the Christian neighborhood believe? Well, you can start with the creeds. The Apostles' Creed, we read that here sometimes. The Nicene Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, which we're going to touch on later on in the series because it was asked. Uh, Athanasian Creed. Those creeds in the first five centuries of the church were ways of hammering out who Jesus is. Right? Things like the Trinity. And everyone agreed on it. This is prior to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Okay? Within that, you've got Protestants. Okay? So not all Christians are Protestants. Some would say 
non-Protestants are not Christian at all. We're not going to get into that one today. But within Protestant churches, you've got Baptists, you've got Presbyterians, you've got Lutherans, right? There's all kinds of different denominations, groups, subgroups within those groups. How many different Baptist groups do you have? That's a really long street with a lot of houses on it, okay, for for example. Um, And then one of those circles, you can call it Reformed Churches, and there's Reformed Church of America, there's Christian Reformed Church, there's Reformed Baptist churches, there's Presbyterians, there's PCA, PCUSA, all these different kinds of churches that would call themselves Reformed. It's one of the guys, one of the blocks in, in that sub-neighborhood, that subdivision, let's say. But if you're driving around and you see a church that says Reformed, that doesn't mean they're solid because they may have um, reinterpreted the solas in such a way that they've lost the gospel. Okay, They believe everyone's going to heaven. No one's going to hell. God never has wrath. Any song that says wrath, they delete it and put a smiley face. I don't know, whatever. Um, so just because it says reform doesn't mean they're solid. People have kind of moved out and created their own blocks outside of the neighborhood. But there are solid reformed churches, and they're not all alike. Some of them are Baptists. Some of them are Presbyterian, etc. Okay, so then the question you might ask is, well, well where are we? Where are we at? At Christian Fellowship Church, and I think it might be easy for some of us to think, well, we're, we're a Reformed church. We're not a Reformed church. We're not a Reformed. Some of you are like, yeah, I know that, because I would have left. You know, I don't know. Um, no, we're, we're not a Reformed. Some of you are like, what? What? That's why I came here. Well, we're not officially a Reformed church. We can explain it this way. We're, we're in the block. We're Protestants. We hold to the five solas. We're evangelical because we hold to those five solas in an orthodox way, but we're not denominational. We don't report to the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't, we're not a PCA church, Presbyterian Church of America, or something like that. And we're not a historic confessional church. Okay? Uh, denominations hold to confessions, like the Presbyterians or maybe Reformed Baptists. We have a confession, but it's not a historic confession, and that's a big difference. Okay? A church with the word Reformed in their name probably are going to hold to something like the Westminster Confession from the 1600s, or uh, the Second London Baptist Confession from the 1600s, a a historic confession that is centuries old, and we don't. We have a shorter, plainer, simpler statement than those historic confessions. Um, I have a lot of love for those historic confessions, but as a church, we weren't planted, started that way. We've not adopted one. So we end up in this non-denominational place. Okay, not necessarily homeless, but that's, that's our street. So we are Christian, we're Protestant, we're evangelical, but we don't hold to a historic confession, and therefore we can't say we're Reformed. Now, the historic confessions are really long. Those of you who took our membership class, maybe you thought that statement was long. Trust me, it's really not long at all. Okay, It's basically like, do you believe Jesus? Check. Um, no, it's not that simple. But um, it's, you know, we're not demanding that you believe everything that a longer historic confession would demand. So what makes someone a Reformed Evangelical Protestant? Evangelical Protestant, but Reformed specifically. They hold to two broad distinctions. We're going to look at the first one today. We're going to look at the second one next week. And I know that some of you are like, "Ah, this just really sounds like a lecture. We're going to get into scripture, and I hope that you can see why this is so important to people. Okay? and why it should be important to you 
The first distinction are the doctrines of grace, and the second distinction is covenantal theology. All right? Some words that we maybe don't use very often. Some of you know what these are. If you, if you don't, that's okay. We're going we're gonna to unpack it. But here's another way to put it. Um, I didn't mean for that to overlap, but the doctrines of grace, people, you might say that's Calvinism. And some people are like, you're not allowed to say Calvin. It's such a bad word. I'm like, well, you know, he didn't invent it, but he helped clarify it, and people assign it to him. Calvinism, and then covenantal theology or covenantalism. So two C's, okay, if that just helps you remember. What is Reformed? If somebody says they're Reformed, they're probably thinking of along these two lines. And if they don't, they're confused and they're probably not Reformed. All right, so those are the two things that make a Reformed church a Reformed church within that big circle. That's the map, okay? All right, that's the map. Um, You can be Calvinistic and still not be Reformed because you've got the first one, but you don't have the second one. You're still not Reformed. Uh, One pastor put it this way. He's like, if if you you say you play golf, and then they ask you what course do you go to, and you're like, the putt-putt course? And he's like, you don't play golf. You need to putt to play golf, but only putting is not golf. Does that make sense? So you can have people that are Calvinistic, John MacArthur, not Reformed because he's not covenantal. So Reformed is both together. You can't be covenantal and not be Calvinistic, but you can be Calvinistic and not Reformed. So schools like Moody Bible Institute, Dallas Theological Seminary, they would be uh, Calvinistic, but not covenantal. And that will be clear next week. Because this week, we're going to focus on the doctrines of grace, what people call Calvinism, and it essentially deals with just how involved is God in our salvation? That's the main question. So through the clutter, in a few minutes, if you feel like your eyes are crossing and it's whatever, that's the main question. That's what everyone's debating, free will versus, we say predestination. Everybody believes in predestination. They just explain it differently because the word predestination wasn't invented by Calvin. It's in Scripture. Uh, But how do you explain it? How involved is God, did God kind of alley-oop and then someone else, something else or someone else has to kind of finish the dunk or do we set it up, set up the spike or whatever sport you want to think about? Is it a, some kind of cooperation? And the doctrines of grace would say no cooperation. No cooperation. It, they refer to it as uh, monergism, which means one energy is making this happen. Versus synergism, which is God, but we need to bring our game too. In some sense, we need to choose. Protestants wouldn't say you need to work, because then that, would, that wouldn't make you Protestant. But they would say, well, you have to use your will. You have to want it. God can only do so much. He offers it, but you have to cross the line yourself. And for people who hold to these doctrines of grace that we're going to look at, uh, would say, no, God does all of it. And then, therefore, he gets all the glory. The doctrines of grace have often been put in this acronym, TULIP. Maybe you've heard it that way before. Maybe you've seen uh, a, a Calvin lover wear a TULIP t-shirt. I mean, it, there's, there's swag. You know, I get it on my Facebook feed all the time. Um, and the TULIP stands for these words, which... At first glance, they're not necessarily the best words, but I'm just going to use them because they're the classic words, and I, don't want, uh, I want you to be able to converse with people that are familiar with these categories. And we're not going to look at all of these, but I just want you to be familiar with what they mean. Okay? Uh, total depravity, 
means that man, everyone, man, woman, child, is, is not capable of, it is capable of civil good, but is incapable of choosing God. So total depravity doesn't mean you're so depraved that apart from Christ, you'd never help an old lady across the street. Apart from Christ, you would never tip a server. Apart from Christ, you'd never give someone a compliment. That's not the doctrine. The doctrine is you can do all those things because in a civil world, we all share sort of civil morals, atheists and everybody. You, some of you know nice atheists and cranky Christians. So, I mean, we're, you know, we're not saying that, um, that this is about moral perfection. What this doctrine is about is can a person choose God? So, in other words, I want to help the old lady across the street, but I really don't want to serve God. So they didn't help the old lady across the street to the glory of God. It was the glory of something else. That's at the heart of the issue. Now, in my opinion, this is the first domino. If Scripture bears the first one out, the rest fall. That's my opinion. Now, some people don't believe that. Some people, the big one they have a problem with is L, limited atonement. So I'm a four-point Calvinist, and you know immediately which one of the five they pulled out is going to be L. Uh, Because that teaches that Christ died for some, not for all. But just follow the logic with me for a second. Okay, I know a lot of us have all these walls, like, whoa, as soon as I said Calvin earlier, it was like, whoa, it's okay. Well, let's, let's walk through the logic. If this is true, man is incapable of choosing God, then unconditional uncondition- election makes sense. God chooses man without requiring man's choosing him. Why? Because man can't choose him. So if anyone's going to make it to heaven, God has to make the choice. That's unconditional election. If he waits for a condition to be met, none of us would make it because none of us want to meet any conditions at all. So then limited atonement would say, but he doesn't choose everyone, so he applies the atonement to the elect. But why, why would Jesus die for people that he's not choosing? He dies for people that he does choose. So if we have a gripe with limited atonement, we really have a gripe with limited election, because we want everyone to have the same fair chance, so to speak. But if total depravity is true, to back it up, if that one's true, then the rest of these make sense. It, it's already limited. No one's capable of choosing God. God chooses some, so he atones some. How does he do it? Since man doesn't want it, God overrides man's resistance so that he'll receive it. And then the last one, because election is God's action upon man, God's faithfulness, not man's faithfulness, is what keeps it. Okay? So you can, if you ask, what is the opposite of Calvinism? Some would say Arminianism, which is true, because Arminius had his five points first. Calvin actually responded, Calvin and others responded with these five points, saying, no, I don't think those are true. These are true. And you can just flip them on their head. Man does have ability. God wait, does wait for a condition before he saves you. You have to meet a condition, even if that condition is, I want you, I, I choose you. Uh, his atonement is for everybody. They just, they just don't all cash that check but he did write that check for everybody, so to speak. Uh, and God's grace is resisted all the time. He puts save, saving grace on somebody, but they have the power to choose it or reject it. And you can't with confidence say that you're going to make it to the end because you can unchoose him. You can unchoose him. You lose your salvation. Now, how much sinning do you need to do? That's a debate. But perseverance of the saints... I mean, they would agree with that. They would say, yeah, we have to persevere. But that's not what this means. This means God perseveres the saint. 
Okay, so those are the five points of tulip for the rest of today. We'll just we'll call it tulip or doctrines of grace or Calvinism. They're all it's all the same idea. Okay, so what I want to do is walk you th- through some scripture passages, and uh, the first one I want to take you to is John three, and I want to make three points to help establish why at least I think total depravity is what scripture describes. When Scripture describes our pre-faith condition, before you were a Christian, before you converted, before you were transformed in Christ, how does the Bible describe your pre-faith condition? And I want to take us to three uh, points that I think are true from the Bible. And the first one is from John 3. I mean, it's from more than John 3, as we'll see. But the first one is at least from John 3 which describes us as needing birth. We need to be born again. That's not news to anyone, okay? But think about it. Does a baby birth themselves? Now, now this is an important analogy. You're like, well, that's not where Jesus went with it. Hold on a second. He could have used any number of analogies, and he used birth as a core one. Look at John 3, this famous passage from which we get John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? But look at the first eight verses, and a lot of the verses we'll look at I'll put on the screen, but let's at least turn to one together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Uh, so this man, you know, he knows scripture, he approaches Jesus at night. It says, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Pause there a second. Y'all know I love Jesus, but he's just so cool, man. Ah, you're so great. You must be from God. You do all these miracles. Hey, man, you're not born again. You know, just, let's just cut to the chase. I know why you're here. I know why you're approaching me at night so that no one sees you and you're wondering if you're out. You're out, man. And there's a way to be in. You have to be born again. I mean, just, just cuts to the chase. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, notice Nicodemus' reaction. Nicodemus knows you can't do that. You can't do that. If you lay it out, do A, B, and C, and then you're in. Okay, it might take a lot of work. It might take a lot of money. It might take a lot of energy, but I can do it. But Jesus uses an, an, an analogy that you can't do. That's Nicodemus' problem in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he's taking it, you know, literally. And then verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do you see how Jesus is putting the two? They're the same. How were you born of the flesh? And then that same way, that's how you're going to be born of the spirit. You didn't conceive yourself. Some action has to happen outside of you for you to be born. You might be like, I don't know. I feel like you're putting stuff in there. Let's continue. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, 
but you do not know where it comes from and where it, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there's two characteristics of being born again, and neither of them have anything to do with your control. In fact, it's the opposite. He says, you know, like when the wind blows, it blows wherever it wants. You hear it sound, but you, you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it goes. So the first point, the wind blows where it wishes. You cannot control the wind. You can lift up a sail and try to catch the wind. You can throw your kite up and try to ride the wind, but you can't control the wind. Okay? The wind does what it wants, and it goes where it wants. The second thing, besides the fact that we can't control it, is we can't predict it. You hear it sound. You can, you can tell it's there. It's not imperceptible, but it's not controllable, and it's not predictable. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus had the perfect opportunity to lay out a plan, a salvation plan, a three-step, four-step, 50-step process for Nicodemus. And he gives him none of it. Something has to happen, come upon you like the wind. And then you're born again. That's what has to happen. He continues uh, to have this conversation with Nicodemus, uh, but I think we can leave it there to say uh, he's at least helping Nicodemus see that he needs something outside of himself and that he can't bring something to the table to birth himself. Just like we can't birth ourselves in the flesh, we don't birth ourselves in the spirit. It's the spirit's job, and he rushes upon someone like the wind, and we don't know who he's going to go to next. Right. Now, I want to put a couple verses up to help us reestablish that. A few more verses just on birth that kind of reemphasize this idea. Um, okay, so First Peter, First Peter three, uh, one, three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me just point out a few things real quick before we go to the next verse. Uh, what causes us to be born again? Better question, who causes us to be born again? God. God causes it. God causes us to be born again. Uh, that's stronger language than, you know, he gave us the option to be born again. He caused it. Now, you see what he says about the inheritance? It's guarded by God. That inheritance that's awaiting us, that final phase of salvation is awaiting us. It's kept untarnished by God. And how does God protect it? This is interesting. By his omnipotent power, the same power that he used to create the planets. Well, yeah, but what, what is the specific vehicle that Peter mentions? Faith. How does God keep your inheritance, Christian? He keeps it according to his power through your faith. I don't think that's cooperation. I think your faith is powered by God. Your faith is powered by God. 
even if you translated it, no, 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 this is God's faith or God's faithfulness, it's still his power guaranteeing our final salvation. When I read a passage like this, brothers and sisters, I know many disagree, and maybe even in this church, I have to tell you how I think it shakes out, and this is how the Reformed uh, would take this verse. This doesn't sound like it takes two to make a thing go right. This sounds like one person did it, one person does it, and one person brings it home. Praise be to God. Another couple verses on regeneration. If you hear the word regeneration, what does that mean? Born again. Regenesis. Okay? That's the theological category. Check out 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay? Anyone who practices true righteousness has already been born again. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to practice that righteousness, right? Everyone is going to go, yeah, Wesleyans, Arminians, Calvin. Everyone's going to go, yeah, that's true. That's the logic of the verse. The question that Reformed people ask is, is it righteous to choose God? Is it righteous to say yes to God? I want to follow you. Is that righteous? Because if it is, how did you do that? Oh, I did that because I was born again. Yeah. By the time you came and spoke to Pastor Lucas and said you wanted to be baptized, by the time you pulled your spouse aside and said, I think, I, I think I'm ready to accept Jesus, to get you to that point, something already happened inside of you. It's an inner birth. After that, we're just all figuring it out. It's an outside action from God. It's a righteous act. I want to be fair to my more Arminian brothers and sisters, they would say, well, not all righteous act. I mean, it's, it's a righteous act, but it's just a choice. It's kind of a different category. Calvinists would say, how is it a different category? It's a righteous choice to choose God, to want to follow him, to worship him, to love him is righteous, and it's produced by the birth. It's not the other way around. The righteous choice doesn't produce the birth. The birth produces the righteous choice. Uh, do I have another one here? I think so. First John 5, 1 John 5.1, this would be fast. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Oh, Someone who says, I believe you're already born. No, 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 I believe, so I want to be born. No, no, see, before you said you believe, you were already born, and that produced the belief. So there it is, same book, clearer. So Jesus' analogy of the Spirit as the wind matches the imagery. Y'all remember, some of you remember Ezekiel 37? where God pulls Ezekiel aside, and he's like, see all these dry bones in the valley? Can they live? And Ezekiel's like, uh, it sounds like a trick question, man. I don't, you, like, you, you tell me. And all this flesh starts appearing on them. God is showing Ezekiel that he is able to make these dry bones live, but they don't pop up right away. After those bones have bodies and flesh and hair and muscle and sinews on them, God breathes into them, and then they live. And he goes, this is Israel. Dead, and I make them alive. That's a lot different than, here's this thing, if you touch it, if you just do something, reach for it, then I'll make you alive. They're dead. And that brings us to the second way that Scripture describes our pre-faith condition. We need to be born, and we need to be raised. Because we're dead. Because we're dead. For that one, we can go to Ephesians chapter 2. Here it is up on the screen. Ten verses, two slides, and you were dead. He's talking to the Ephesians church. 
He's asking the elders at Ephesus to read this letter to everybody, not to pull out a few people. This is everybody, every Christian. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You were demonic. Paul's not holding back, right? We're like, I know some people in my life that they're definitely following Satan. I mean, there's Ouija boards in the closet, like, I don't know what. They're, but he's saying, you follow the prince of the air. Everyone. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's where we were. We were dead in that place. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. He's including himself. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the desires of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So everyone is in this position of being dead in trespasses and sin. Verse 4, the glorious part of this passage, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's perseverance of the saints even to the end. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I chose him. I did it. I played my part, right? No one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even our good works were prepared beforehand? (laughs) Now we can rush past these to our favorite verses, but we do have to deal with these verses that hit you square in between the eyes with God's utter sovereignty and power in effecting salvation in people, causing us to be born again, or in this second analogy, making dry bones live. He makes dead people rise. Dead people don't revive themselves. A partially dead person might be able to resuscitate themselves, but this is not an analogy of resuscitation. This is an analogy of resurrection. What is the difference? Kind of dead, on their way to being dead, still a little life, still a little power, still a little something, dead. That's the difference. So how does someone who's dead rise again? They are resurrected. Colossians 2, verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Together with who? The person? No, Christ. Having forgiven us all, our trespasses. We can go on and on, but anytime the scripture talks about death and being raised, you think of Romans, we were there not long ago, where Paul makes it clear we were dead. Now, do you have to be Calvinistic to believe that we were dead before Christ? No. Every, every Christian is going to go, yeah, we were dead before Christ, and then, and then we were raised. But for Reformed folks who hold to the doctrines of grace, tulip, Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, I don't like really any of those phrases, but anyway... For Reformed folks, this speaks to a total inability to seek after God because it takes some life, it takes some spark to kind of seek after God. And a dead person doesn't have a spark. A dead person doesn't show up on the 
blip screen that shows you your heart, the heart monitor or whatever. I should have researched that. Anyway, right? there is nothing there. There's no sign of life. But wanting God, seeking after God, that's kind of a sign of life. And so for the Reformed person, that doesn't really make sense. We're dead in our trespasses, and we don't show, we don't exhibit signs of life. And so God has to step in and put life where there was no life. Not just a few pumps on the chest and, right, uh, to revive us, but take us com- from complete death to total and real life. And this leads us to the third aspect. We are in need of birth. We are in need of birth. We are dead, so we need resurrection. And the third one is we don't seek God. This is the irony, the hilarity of churches, especially in the late 70s, thriving through the 80s, early 90s even, seeker-sensitive churches. No one seeks, man. Well, if we just have a, a dope enough band, you know what I mean? Like if the pastor just dressed a little cooler, people would come. Well, then they're seeking something cool, but they're not seeking God. They're seeking fun music, but they're not seeking God. What if we ha- have handouts? If you come, every Sunday we're going to give one iPad away. They're seeking an iPad. They're still not seeking God. Seeker-sensitive church, a seeker-sensitive service is a contradiction in terms. So let's look at a couple passages really quickly. Uh, Psalm 53, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. How many people in the world does that describe? Everyone. Because there is none who does good. Verse 1. God looks down from heaven. Who's the seeker? If you're, I hope we're a seeker-sensitive church. Seeker, capital S. Because the seeker is God. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Are there any? No. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. What kind of good? The good that it takes to seek after God. How many people in the world seek after God, and then after they seek him, he does something? Zero. Now, if you were to turn to, you don't have to, but if you were to turn to Psalm 14, the first three verses are almost exactly the same. And then when you go to uh, Romans, Paul quotes these psalms and applies it to everybody. It's not like, oh, that was back then, the, the, all the Ittites you know, that lived around Israel. Those are the bad people that never see God. Paul, Paul's writing the Romans, and he's talking about everybody, and he's saying everybody has fallen short. Don't we all quote that when we're explaining the gospel to somebody? We all fall short of the glory of God. Well, what, how does the Bible describe our falling short? It describes it as falling short by not even seeking him. That's what it said. Verse 3, they all have fallen away because they don't do good. What good do they not do? Seek after God in verse 2. There is no seeker unless God makes you a seeker. Unless God has some, comes upon you like the spirit, like the wind rushes upon you and does something upon you so that you then seek him. And you might say, well, I remember when I was feeling like I was being drawn to the Lord and then I started seeking him. I know, you were being drawn. Who drew you? So the, the first actor, the initiator, is God. That's, that's the point. Now others would say, well, yeah, he initiates by offering a, an option for you. But what the Reformed 
interpretation of these verses would say is that God initiates by giving you what you need to make that choice, to make you a seeker. Okay? We never make the first move. A couple other verses really quickly, but I think they're strong. I think they're really strong. John 6, 44. These two verses, goodness, just chew on these. I just ask you to chew on these and be honest with yourselves, okay? Be honest with yourself. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yeah, 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 but he draws everybody. And some people just resist the drawing. But then look at the rest of the verse. And I will raise him up on the last day. Who does Jesus raise up in this verse? The people he draws, right? Now, our Arminians or non-Calvinists would insert a middle phase. God draws everybody. Some respond to the drawing, and those people that respond to his drawing, Jesus raises them up on the last day. And then they add a fourth one, which is maybe if you keep seeking him because you can lose your salvation. So So maybe he raises them up, and the them who he raises up are the people that responded. But you see how much we're inserting in the verse? It just says God has to draw you if you're going to come to me, and then I'll raise you up. I will raise you up. So the people that Jesus raises up on the last day, those who will join Christ in the final resurrection, that glorious moment where we escape judgment, final salvation, final phase of salvation, we're there because Jesus raised us up. And we're, we're raised up by Jesus because the Father drew us. And he doesn't do that with everyone because not everyone is raised up. Now, there are universalists that say everyone's raised up, and that's a whole other, they're not even on the block, okay? And that map I showed earlier, they fell off the wagon, and that would be a different sermon, but that one's just a little too easy. And hopefully most of you are are there with me on that. Not everyone is saved. That's sad, that's heartbreaking, that's heart-wrenching. But we're not here to go, what would make a good Hallmark movie? We're here to go, what does Scripture say? Not everyone goes to heaven, not everyone is raised. The question that we're dealing with this morning is, how are we raised? Do I do a little bit and then God does the rest? Or does God just, boom, do it in somebody's life? Calvinists, Reformed folks would say the latter. One more verse. Uh, This one rocked me when I was doing my undergrad, reading through the Bible and bopping along in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are preaching. The Jews get ticked off. Some of the Jews want to hear more, but some of the Jews are really ticked off about the gospel. They don't want to hear it, and so they reject it. And then Paul says, because you're rejecting the gospel, I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. And so he preaches it to the Gentiles who haven't heard this stuff before. And they get saved. Look at verse 48 that describes how they got saved. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now that was a moment for me. I remember calling one of my theological mentors who was total Arminian, hated Calvin, all that. Hey, man, can you turn to Acts 13, 48 for a second? Oh, you know, that blah, 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 blah. No answer. I remember hanging up the phone going, there's no answer to that. I'm sure somebody has some explanation out there, but just using your normal eyes, look at the order of what transpired in those Gentiles. They were believers so then they were appointed or they were appointed and so because they were appointed they believed that day it's the second one (sighs) 
Now, earlier in this passage, we see that when Paul rebukes those Jews for rejecting it, he tells them, you guys are rejecting the gospel, showing and judging yourselves as unworthy of eternal salvation. You're unworthy of it. Now, you could go, see? They were unworthy of it, but these Gentiles made themselves worthy of it. But that's not what the text says. Would the Calvinists disagree that those Jews were unworthy of it? Yeah, go back to the tea and tulip. Total depravity. None of us are worthy of it. Now, when you get to verse 48, that's the perfect opportunity for Luke, the author, to say, but these guys were worthy because of A, B, and C. And he doesn't. He gives, I think, one of the strongest verses for predestination that you can find in the Bible, even though it doesn't use the word predestination. It gives you a definition. Appointing someone so that they now believe. Not waiting for them to believe and then make the appointment. And that's how non-Calvinists have to describe all those election and predestination verses. You know, God foresees that they're going to choose, so then he chooses them. Yeah, but they chose first. And that's different than predestination. They destinated themselves. So we have to wrestle with these words. We have to wrestle with these difficult verses. They're, They're difficult because it runs against the grain of our sensibility that I'm good enough to at least make a choice. And the Bible strips that down and goes, no, you would just be Pharaoh with a hardened heart. That's all you would be unless God stepped in and did something different. I don't look back at my life and go, I remember when I figured things out. I look back at my life and I remember when God plucked me and I think about where I would be if he didn't. It's God's work and he gets all the glory. Why do we sing? We take our crowns and cast them down. We don't split the crown in half and go, here's your half because you helped me out. It's all him. Why should I wear a crown? I didn't choose you. And that's what Jesus told his disciples, didn't he? You didn't choose me. I chose you. That's how discipleship works. This is what everyone is trying to put together. Uh, Throughout the Bible, when we reject God, like in Acts 13, when we reject God, we get the blame. But when we accept God, he gets the glory. Well, which one is it? It's yes, And so people who reject Calvinism all want to use the verses that show the first one. When you reject God, it's your fault. Therefore, you have will. And then the Calvinists rally around the second half where they go, all the verses that show about our our salvation, who gets the glory, who gets the credit, all of it is God. So how can it be that we chose it? And I think when you're trying to put the two things together, all these debates throughout all the years, what we're trying to do is hold those two things together. Now, I do know of Calvinists that go overboard, and man is just like a robot. And, and that's not true either. We reject God willingly. Some of you have heard of one of Luther's most famous works, The Bondage of the Will. Luther's not saying, we don't have a will. He's saying your will is bound to want what it wants, and it always wants to reject God. That's the problem. What God has to do is not come in and give you a will, because prior to that you were a robot. You're not a robot. You do what you want to do. But what you want to do is always the same thing. And God has to step in and give you a different heart so that you want something else now. That's how Calvinists put the two things together. God is perfectly glorified in justice. God is perfectly glorified in justice by condemning all those who spurn his goodness, but he's also chosen before the foundation of the world a group of hearts that he would override to demonstrate his power and his grace. And then we ask, I know you're asking it, well, why doesn't he do that for everyone then? 
And that's where we reach the end of the line of what you need to know. The rest of it stays in God's briefcase called Top Secret. And you're on a need-to-know basis. And isn't this what you tell your kids? They're like, they start asking questions. You answer some of them, but some of them you're like, you know what? I'm dead. Be quiet. I'm not going to sit here and explain every single thing because then now you're the parent. I'm enslaved to explaining everything to you. I'm not enslaved to explaining everything to you. And if, and if I tried, you wouldn't get all of it because you're four years old. How much more, how much more uh, distance do we have between us and God? It's infinitely greater. I want to wrap up with this really quickly, if I can. Uh, I didn't grow up Reformed. Uh, I've not even read through the Institute. Should I admit that on something that's going online? Like, I've never read all through Calvin's Institutes. I don't have a Calvin t-shirt. The, the beard is coincidental. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have 1689 tattoos. I, I didn't grow up in it, and I don't like it because it's trendy. I got rocked by some of these verses that I got tired of explaining away. That's what happened. I got tired of explaining things away. I wasn't discipled in these things. But I do remember what drove my theology, and this might be true of you, and this is dangerous. What drove my theology is God can't be like that. Not my God. God wouldn't do that. And what we want to do is let God off the hook because it makes him sound guilty. He, he chooses some and he doesn't choose the others? Wouldn't he be fair? That doesn't sound fair. Well, it'd be fair if he chose no one. That's one of the things that we need to grapple with because we all spurn God and we're all dead in our trespasses. Not just randomly dead, it's our trespasses that we love and we like and we spurn him. And he would be completely just to save nobody out of that. But he saves some by his what? By his have to? By his obligation? Grace. Mercy. He saves some. And we think we would do it differently. If I were writing scripture, I would draw it up differently. If I was inventing the religion, God would look a little more fair than that. But nothing we do really lets God off the hook unless we de-God God. And let me explain that really quickly. I know we're coming up on our normal time, but this is really important. However you feel about the things I've been saying uh, this morning, you don't want the thing that drives your theology to be what you think God should be like, because then you're breaking the uh, second commandment, which is creating God in an image that you like. Not worshiping a different God, but taking the God of Yahweh, uh, of, of Israel, and shaping it and fashioning it into some graven image that dumbs it down into something that is graspable. And that's another form of idolatry. Sometimes we reject Calvinistic-sounding things because that sounds like it puts God on the hook. It makes him sound a little guilty. So we say, well, he offered it to everybody. We're at fault for not choosing it. It's our fault for not choosing it, and so that makes God a little more fair. The problem with that is if God is omniscient and all-knowing, and he knew that Adam would bite that fruit, and he knew that after Adam bites that fruit, all of mankind is going to be put in this predicament, and most of them would go to hell, and he still did it? Does that get God off the hook? I don't think it does. So then what's the next step? He must not know. This is where I was at like 18 years old. I'm like, he, mu- he must not know. How can he know 
that this would happen, and he still did it. He's still guilty to me. He must not know. Now, I didn't know it at the time. I was delving into something called open theism, where either God lacks foreknowledge, foreseeing, foresight, or he intentionally blocks it so he doesn't see it. I don't know. What is that? What kind of God is that? Gambling, then? This might turn out really bad, but I'm going to block myself from seeing it. Is that a good God? You can't get God off the hook, and he doesn't need you to get him off the hook. Read his Bible and believe what he tells you to believe and leave the top secret stuff up to him. Now, why is this something that you shouldn't all go home and not even eat lunch because your stomach is turned to knots and you're like, this is really difficult and it's a big downer? I think it's glorious. And I think we should sing our closing song with energy, revived verve. What is so glorious about this? Three things really quickly. One, I don't know if I put these up here. What's so glorious? There we go. Look, here's the first one. Little tulips. Uh Little tulips I put up there. We can trust God to bring us home. In any other theology outside of Reformed or Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, you don't know that. But if God is the actor, the initiator and the finisher, the author and perfecter, the author of Hebrews tells us Christ is, and he will bring you home. This is why we sing songs like, he will hold me fast. What if I drop him? He doesn't drop me. If you're helping your little child across the street and they let go of your hand, you go, well, and you let go of their hand and then a car hits them? It's your responsibility to get that child across the street. And whose idea is that? God's. He's the one saying, I bring you home, as those verses bore out that we saw earlier. And we don't know why he chooses what he chooses. I don't know why he chose me and not some of my cousins or why he chose my mom and didn't choose, you know, my dad or somebody else. I, I, I don't know. But I know that if he chose me, he's boss. He's king. And nothing's going to separate me from him. No big bully, no power of the air, no prince, no demon, no Satan, no world, no government. Not even my flimsy self. Because he holds my hand I'm not holding his hand. It's the might of his hand, not mine. The second thing is we can share the gospel with confidence. You know, back when I was Arminian, <laughs> I'd share the gospel and then somebody wouldn't turn and I'd be like, ah, oh, what can I do? You know what I mean? Like, he's just right there. How, do, how could I convince them to take the option? And one of my things that I didn't like about Calvinism is like, well, pff, why share the gospel with anybody? He's going to choose who he chooses. He uses means. And when I roll up on somebody with the gospel, I'm not afraid that they're atheists, they're cussing at me, they hate my guts. That hardness, can that be broken through by a sovereign God? Yep. I don't evangelize the people that seem most ready, most willing, because none of that matters. If God goes, bang, you're saved. The Spirit of God rushes upon them. It doesn't matter how much they hate God. He can turn them in an instant. I evangelize anybody now. I'm not afraid to evangelize somebody because it's not my power. It's not even their power. God rescues people with the gospel. We just need to get out there and throw the gospel out there. Trust that we throw seeds on rocky soil, this soil, that soil, indiscriminate sowing, and let God take care of the growth. We can have confidence that he will grow the church, and we should not turn down an opportunity to share the gospel because we think that person is too tough a nut to crack. You're not cracking it. Trust God with it. Finally, last one, and this might sound counterintuitive to many of us, but 
we can pray with zeal. I often hear this. Well, on Calvinism, why would you pray if God does everything himself? Well, I just turn that on the questioner and say, if God is up there going, I'm just leaving it up to mankind, then why are you praying? Why do you pray for your governor, your president? If God is like, well, I mean, I exposed them to the truth, but I don't know. The Calvinist prays like, I want you to take the governor and do this with him. I want you to take my wife and change your heart. I want you to take my child who's off the rails and save him. Now, God is either going to go, I'm trying. I'm trying. They're just really, really rebellious right now. Or he goes, you know what? Bang. Which one is it? I think good Arminians pray like they're Calvinists because they trust that God can rescue a heart and with an outside action change somebody who wants nothing to do with God into somebody who wants to serve God. And some of, the, some of you, yeah, that's your testimony. You weren't looking for it. It came upon you. So I think we can leave here with confidence. We don't have all the things figured out. How does our will fit into God's action, and how does that exactly work? But we know some basic things, that for anyone to be saved, God has to do the work. So we should be more prayerful. If you're reformed, you should be more prayerful, in my opinion, than anybody else. Or your prayer should look a certain way, banking on God's sovereignty to do things. When we go to heaven, he's not going to go, I wasn't going to save him, but you prayed it. And I was like, you know what? Good idea. Like when he tells Moses, I'm just going to destroy them and start all over with you. And Moses is like, no, don't do that. Then you won't get the same glory. They'll say you just dissed your first people and picked the new people. You think God was like, oh, yeah, that's right. This desert dweller raised by the Egyptians helped me figure this out. No, he was like, there you go. There you go. That's how I do things. I don't drop my people. Even when they're out there singing songs to a golden calf, I keep them and change them and make them the people I want them to be. That's what the whole dry bone in the valley is about. God over our rebellion. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I know many of you have questions, uh, maybe follow-up. I don't know, I invite you to have lunch with me afterwards if you want. Um, But let me close in prayer, and I hope and I pray that our singing now uh, will have at least our hearts resonating with God's faithfulness toward us. Father, as we sing now and close in this song, we ask that you would give us grace uh, to um, not allow the things that we don't fully understand to unsettle our hearts, but allow our hearts to be settled on a few core things, that you are faithful, you are just, you are true, you do what is right, you do what is wise, and that you promise that you, by your power, will keep our inheritance to the end. And we sing glory and praise to you for being a God of uh, amazing grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in this song.